Dave Borlase is my guest on this episode of Inside Ideas, brought to you by Innovators Magazine and 1.5 Media. Born just four months before man first landed on the moon back in 1969, Dave has been conscious of environmental issues since studying for a technology degree with the Open University in the late 1990s. In early 2017, Dave read a seminal book called A Farewell to Ice, written by the Arctic research scientist, Professor Peter Wadhams. That book was an epiphany that set Dave off on a quest to create climate communication videos that aim to decode the sometimes overwhelmingly complicated and confusing scientific information around climate change with the objective of explaining the concepts in the sort of plain English that everyday folks can understand. He does it so well. His YouTube channel, Just Have a Think, now has one over 100,000 subscribers through his weekly videos. Dave seeks to understand the issues that face our civilization in the 21st century and focuses on the potential solutions that will save as many lives as possible and hopefully bring about a greater level of equality in the world. You can visit Just Have a Think channel on YouTube as well as support Dave through his Patreon site, Just Have a Think. Dave, thank you so much for being here. I could go on and on about your biography and past, uh, but I want to get into that as we, we speak today. You give us a little behind the scenes look at how your journey has been. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. So not only do you have over 100,000 subscribers, but you have wonderful video that says nature has learned how to eat our plastic it has about a million views congratulations it's a wonderful video nuclear fusion revolutionary new breakthrough has about four hundred and twelve thousand views also amazing one of my favorites is the one on water and meat where you actually give us a little clip and you go out to your uh, garden or your backyard and you start hauling in water and showing us, you know, how much water is in chicken embedded in chicken, how much water is embedded in sausages, etc. Fabulous amount of work, but just amazing results on what a well-produced video. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, that's very kind of you to You're say. You're setting the yeah. example and a lot of people are, are, are noticing and coming to you for or these type of things. I believe we're aligned in many things uh, regarding climate and the 21st century, the road that we're going. So we're going to have a lot of opportunities to go down some rabbit holes into a deeper dive dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that's really my hope today. I don't want to tickle or scratch the surface too much. I really want to <laughs> get in behind the scenes, you know, pull back the curtain and see your journey. That brings me to the first question. You started with a book, but how did that journey go? And I, and I see the evolution a little bit because I've watched the videos, but can you give us a little insight of, of how that went? Yeah. Someone said um, that once you know these things, you can't unknow them. And I think that's probably a good summary of where I, where I, where I started and where, why I'm continuing, really. So, so 
I did the degree in the 90s with the Open University. That was a technology degree. Even back then, we were looking at renewable energy. In those days, wind was was kind of where it was at. And, and we studied a, um, the Danish um, example of, of the way the Open University put it was really trying to teach us how uh, that all solutions aren't necessarily final and complete and they, they can't be brought to governments or corporations as perfect entities. They have to be developed. And the, the great example was in the early 70s, we had the oil crisis, as you know, and the wind power was offered to the United Kingdom as a great opportunity because we're the windiest country in Europe and it was the obvious thing to do. Um, and because it was in its nascency and, and it wasn't fully developed and because the UK government had just discovered North Sea oil, of course, they rejected wind out of hand and just went full on into the North Sea. The Danes had a similar opportunity and, in, and they understood that it wasn't a completely finished article and they divulged it, um, I think that's the right word, to their farmers. They, they basically said to their farmers, look, you've all got sort of windmills of some sort, develop them and see what you can come up with. We'll put a centre of excellence in Copenhagen, bring your ideas to the centre of excellence and, and we'll see if we can build an industry out of it, which is exactly what they did. And by the time I was studying for a degree in 1996, the Danes had cornered the wind market. It was worth about four billion pounds, I think, in those days, 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago. And so that taught me something at a very young age about, about, you know, not necessarily looking for perfect solutions, but getting something and working with it. And then, so I was interested in solar more recently. I'd bought a house 10 years ago or so, and uh, I've got this cabin that I'm sitting in now. This is where I do all the videos and all the work. And I, I wanted to put some solar on here to make it a bit more sustainable and to learn about, you know, solar installation. And, and I'm a bit of a you know gadget boy anyway so i wanted to get my hands into the wires and find out how it all works and how to convert 12 volts from ac into dc or dc into ac and inverters and all that so i put that on the cabin and while i was researching for how to do that that led me towards you know how the internet takes you down all sorts of rabbit holes and that's how i found the book from peter wadhams um so what i thought at the time i thought well climate change is happening and it's apparently a little bit of a problem and it'd be quite nice if I put some solar panels on my roof and wouldn't that be that probably be about as much as I need to do by the time I'd done research and then by the time I'd finally read, read the whole of Peter Wadden's book I was like oh my god we are really in trouble in a way that I had no idea really no and I thought of myself as a fairly well-informed kind of guy I had no idea of the magnitude of the trouble that we're in and as I say, once you know that, you can't unknow it. And so that really um, pushed me on. And so I wanted, then I, then I wanted to start talking about it. I'd reached the age of nearly 50. I'd done kind of 30 odd years in, in a career. I'd done my striving to do, you know, corporate stuff. And, and I felt I'd reached a point where I could start saying useful things and talking in a useful way. And I'd, most of my working life had been managing people, understanding what makes people tick and and looking at good managers and bad managers and and i'd learned quite early on that that you know to get people to to do things you know, obviously you have to tell them what to do and you have to tell them how to do it but you really need to tell them why and and that's that third thing is missed by so many managers they just say this is what you need to do and this is how you need to go do it now you know go away and do it and don't come back till it's finished not a good way to manage people not a good way to get people to do stuff unless they understand why they're probably going to either not do it at all or do it in a half-hearted way. 
So I wanted to produce videos that tried to explain why, obviously the what and the how, but why we need to do these things. And in words that, that as you said earlier, words that people like me can understand. And I, so I read through these so many scientific papers and I, there were weeks when I was almost in tears with, you know, trying to understand these papers or just trying to bring out of these papers the salient information that you can give to a member of the public in 30 seconds or a few minutes in a reasonably engaging and entertaining way that will keep their attention and help them understand the point because they're never going to trawl through a thousand pages of a scientific peer-reviewed report with all the technical language that you've got to go and look up and understand people aren't going to do that so that was really that was the mission nice short sharp videos 10 to 15 minutes hopefully in length engaging little bit of video work and animation hopefully a fairly upbeat um, optimistic and sometimes humorous um, presentation from me and you know maybe it'll work and, and I just started. You did a fabulous job that's really turned out to be something and I know you you kind of touched upon it that there's been an evolution or a journey there that, uh, for example, I'll give you the, the example most recent. You just released um, a video on Sunday, or was it Saturday, Sunday? And yesterday. you had, yeah, yesterday, you had to um, read, I think there was a minimum four reports, there are major reports, and they're between 70 and 200 pages long, some of those mm -hmm. reports. And uh, they're very complicated, very scientific, very, a lot, a lot of things in there. I've also read the reports, but that is a lot of work. And then to summarize that, to get it into an executive summary, something that's understandable is extremely hard and complex to do. But I think if I'm wrong, can you tell us a little bit more about the the journey. So you started out and you're like, oh no, I'm, I'm getting into a rabbit hole. I've just read this book. Now I want to do a video. This is extremely complicated. And then as I watch your videos over time, they just, it's actually, it's just not only did the videos get better, the producing and the quality of the post-production and animation, but the content and the, the, mm -hmm. the you know, did you use tools like critical thinking, systems thinking, uh, sense making? What can you give us that more insight on that? How you evolved, and what maybe some aha moments or some specific videos that you did say, "Wow, this is one of my favorite. I learned the most ever there." Yeah, I mean, the the first few videos were really just the the intention was for folks to come along with me on my journey from relative ignorance through to knowing a little bit more. And it was really, I suppose the real idea was what can I do in my life to affect change? And, and what can I change in my lifestyle to try and reduce my carbon footprint and make myself a bit more environmentally um, friendly, if you like. So that was the first few videos. Um, and the, from a production point of view, it was, it was just, that was really, I, I figured the first year would be my apprenticeship on, on uh, learning how to, you know, make videos. I'd used Adobe Photoshop and, um, and Premiere Pro and After Effects a little bit for work in the past. So I kind of had a, a, a passing acquaintance with them, um, uh, but not much more than that. So, so I was learning how to use the, the tools of the trade, if you like. And you'll see that if you watch all the videos, you'll see a progression from, you know, uh, quality, the production standards, as you say, have, have generally improved um, more and more. And as I've got better equipment, better camera, 
um, you know, that's, that's improving all the time. But the, the, the journey, the transition from what can I do in my own personal life through to the realization that it was, a, it was a bigger, more global issue. And I needed to, I felt I needed to start talking about more global issues, particularly collective action um, and pressuring governments to start to put incentives and stimulus, carrot and stick, if you like, to be more proactive um, in the world. I was seeing that more and more of that as I, as I went to it. It coincided quite nicely with the, you know, XR and Greta came along in, in 2018. So I started in 2000, early 2018. And then those movements began not long after that. So I think public awareness was already being picked up by those people as well. Um, and I went, I went and followed the XR occupation of London um, last April. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. And that, you know, that showed me a lot about, the power of collective activism two two weeks after that event the the xr people were in a room with michael gove who's the uk who was the uk environment secretary and his team and he was asking them what it was they wanted to see the government do and and some of their demands he he met declaring a climate emergency is a good start at least it's a public declaration so i saw all that happening and so that that's kind of led me more and more towards videos about um, more global things, technological and and not so much political, but collective act and action, if you like, you know, um, getting people to get up and stand up and do something. Um, and so there's been there were more and more at the end of the videos, there were, there were more and more sort of just brief summaries from me that talked about, you know, this isn't just a video for you to watch and a bit of eye candy. It's you can do something here. Um, and if you you know, if you feel you can interact in any way in your local environment or, or whatever you can do, don't sit by and watch it happen because it's happening now. Get up and do something. So, so it sort of, it drove me, me my, my ambition to drive others kind of drove me as well at the same time. Um, in terms of, um, I don't know whether there are any seminal videos. I did interview Peter Wadhams. I did, I did, I went to see him at Cambridge in his offices and I cut that into four videos um, and he spoke very eloquently, um, very compellingly about the issues, not just in the Arctic, which, which are, of course, very uh, grievous, but uh, about the implications of what's happening in the Arctic for the rest of the world, including particularly down in the mid latitudes. We spoke a bit about um, famine and hunger and, and, uh, and floods as well. And that's going to affect those regions more than anywhere else in the world. And that was a learning curve for me as well. So that opened my mind a little bit to it's not just putting solar panels on your roof or getting wind power in your country. It is the entire global interlinked system that we've got now, particularly with, with getting food and products from one place to another is really destroying huge swathes of, of very complex and fragile and vulnerable ecosystems and biodiversity in ways that, you know, you just, we just don't seem to, understand and appreciate as human beings because we've got away with it for so long it's inconceivable to us that we can't keep going away with it some people still don't think it's possible for the human being to have an a sufficiently large impact on the planet that we would you know that we could start destroying things which of course is completely wrong so um so i think that's that's been my journey from what can i do as an individual to what what we can all do uh, i'm just a drop in the ocean but we all constitute we're all drops and the oceans are made out of drops and we all make up an ocean. So that's kind of been the journey, if you like. Thank you. 
Yes, I, I see that journey, and that, that's why I wanted to ask about it. I also see that it's not just you reading the reports and the light going on with you. You're actually installing the solar panels. You're out saying, okay, how much physical water does it take to put into these ch this chicken I'm going to get ready to grill? And you put that in a video. And so... That where possible, I mean, nuclear fission, you're not building a reactor or anything in your backyard, but you're trying where possible to um, build that sustainable, that resilient lifestyle. You're also, you know, changing different things that you read and you say, okay, well, how can I apply that to little old me, my life and, and into my situation now where possible? And if not, what do I need to do to maybe get a further step in the right direction? And I, I see that kind of with, I, I look at your videos with a different lens, so to say. And so I, I definitely see that. And I, I really like that. And that's uh, what I also hear, heard with you just telling us kind of behind the scenes how it's developed. That goes into what we've just experienced, this whole pause this pandemic the COVID-19 the Black Lives Matter the, the unrest the kind of crazy distancing and, and things that we're still experiencing around the world and to some extent haven't fully come out or don't know if we're going into a second mm -hmm. wave but I want to know by having the sustainability mindset by having a little bit of resilience, those things that you've learned over the past two years or more, or since you've done this, well, it's four years now almost, hasn't it been? Nearly, yeah. Yeah, so um, has that helped you weather this time a lot better, be more prepared and feel like, wow, okay, and, and tell us how and why, what, what, how, how has it looked for you? Well, it's an it's a good question, and it's an interesting one. And I think the two things do do cross over climate change, if you like, and 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 living more sustainably, and this pandemic. They do cross over, and I, I suppose one before I say, but one caveat I would interject just right here is that I I do take care not to be. I don't want to sound like you know well at least things I've done, aren't I? You know the great I am. So that that's not how I I intend my messages to come across, and I hope they don't come across that way. But the fact remains, I have made quite a lot of changes in my life that have actually, ironically, been quite useful in the pandemic. So, for example, seven years ago, I stopped driving a car. I don't have a vehicle. Um, uh, a long time ago, I stopped drinking alcohol when I was 35. Stopped smoking when I was 30. Um, three years ago, I went vegetarian. And then about six months later, I went vegan. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, not because I not because I have a passionate uh, uh, abhorrence of, of, of man eating flesh. I understand a lot of vegans do, and that's their motivation. And I, 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 I'm not a big fan of killing animals. I, I've now learned that there's no need for an animal to die for me to eat and be sustained. So I'm more, I'm more practical, if you like. I, I looked at the land use of, of, um, of animal livestock farming in the world the big agribusinesses i'm talking about not i'm not talking about small holdings up in aberdeen or somewhere the big agribusinesses and i thought that yeah i don't need to be part of that and that's so that's why i went vegan and i found it was really easy to do and made me feel more healthy so um those sacrifice not sacrifices those changes that i made in my life i made because i wanted to not because anyone told me i had to um 
solar and wind or solar power certainly on my house has been a help so in the pandemic little things like um uh the the lack of mobility that has been inflicted upon us um and you're not supposed to drive you know long distances to do any this that and the other well i wasn't doing that anyway because i'd got used to a lifestyle that was slightly more constrained um i haven't got kids so i don't need to take the kids to school i understand some people have need to have a way of doing that i, I get that but in my life uh i i'd learned how to live in a much more constrained way i i walk once a week i walk to the supermarket which is a mile uh, from my house with a buck with a backpack and i i buy you know uh food as environmentally as environmentally sustainable as you can from a supermarket i guess but it's vegan food so it tends to be quite well sourced and i try to buy food that's sourced in this country rather than flying it in from all over the world fill up my backpack and i walk home and that's good exercise so that keeps me fit um i'm not using a vehicle um uh, i'm not you not even using public transport in that respect and in the pandemic that i've been able to just continue that way of life nothing i haven't really had to amend anything in my life um to cope with the pandemic so it hasn't been a wrench you know like i think it perhaps has for some people um and i think the pandemic shows us that living more within your means and a more contained lifestyle is how we will need to live in the future we just will i mean we can start getting used to it now in our generation and, and maybe the generation after us or the world will change to such an extent that these the ability to live in a less constrained way won't be there because nature will have done the job for us so that's kind of the choice in my opinion that's kind of the choice we've got so that i think what the pandemic i think is starting to sow that seed of thought in a lot of people's minds um, and that can only be a good thing. So, so I was lucky in a way that I'd already kind of maybe started on a little bit of that journey. And I hope a lot more people are beginning to think about it in that sense now as well. Well, I, I really figured that you weren't out hoarding toilet paper or disinfectant or... Um, no, I've not know, been injecting the... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, out um, doing the mask making craze. I... Uh, there, there's a unique thing that happens when you start to think more sustainable. You also usually start to live more sustainable and apply the things that you see because you see that they're a little bit better operating system, that it's more efficient, it's nicer, uh, you feel more secure, there's a little bit more resilience there. I had the opportunity to interview um, an Oxford professor from Jesus College, I believe it uh, is where he teaches, uh, mm -hmm. Tomas David Barrett, and he does a show called The Human Beasts. And in one episode of his, his uh, show, he, he interviews a zoo designer that does big zoos, and they were calling our homes and places we live these human zoos. And when you you have the sustainable resilient mindset if you're already thinking in that way you tend to have the technologies the innovations the things in place where you live to make it comfortable to make it efficient to make it so that you can sustain yourself and so your home human zoo actually is as a place you feel comfortable to do your work and live and and and, you know, there's some cartoons out there that are really funny. So I can't remember, do I uh, work from home or is this my, you know, uh, or is this my office? Am I at the office? I can't, you know, distinguish the two. 
Yeah. And um, it's really kind of a construct of how we design our lives. And I think uh, from what I've seen from your videos, there's evolution and not only how, what you explained in the beginning, it's you've created a nice place and a nice system so that you have a little bit more resilience than others. And, and that's really what I hope to hear because the, the biggest um, cause for people not to transition or to move to something as they think it's hard or it's difficult or they don't understand it or it's scary or costs a lot. And uh, in the long run, it's actually just a much better system. And so I see that with you and, and uh, I, I heard it in your response. And so that's a very beautiful that was my first question and, and really kind of for the listeners to see what, what, how do other people do it? Because some people that I know really never applied it. They talked about it a lot, didn't apply it, and they were the ones out hoarding toilet paper. They didn't know what to do. Yeah. They didn't have the technologies ready to be able to work from home or to, to survive. They, and so well, it's good to have that. That speaks to the, and I didn't mention it then, but we can perhaps get into it as well, is, is the, the, the system thinking, the, the, the fast and slow thinking, or I, I sometimes call it the emotional mind and the intellectual mind. And the emotional mind is the knee-jerk reaction to what's in front of you, which is the people buying dozens and dozens of toilet rolls. They just reacted. didn't They didn't show any acumen for projecting forward with their intellectual, rational mind as to, well, do I really need 157 toilet rolls? Mm. You know that they just reacted, and and so that's perhaps something we can we can delve more into because it's an interest. It's a very interesting area, and I think it's one of the reasons why climate change is so difficult to communicate because we're talking to people who generally do use their emotional mind, and not the slow intellectual rational system to critical thinking. I suppose you might say to project forward into into the consequences. That of their was my today. next question. So we could dive into it right, right <laughs> now. It was about critical thinking. And, and you know, I, uh, for me, for example, I'm not worried if there was a shortage of toilet paper. I, I have a bidet. I have a way to do it. I can use rainwater recycling or other methods, uh, a little five euro adapter to the toilet, and I can have a bidet, you know, and, and yeah. Uh, try to think differently of you know how to do it and it's not going back to neanderthal times it's actually thinking just you know how, how can i be a little self-sufficient and so yeah but that's a, a a paradigm shift a mindset a critical way of critically thinking of the situation you're in instead of hitting that doom and gloom of panic or hoarding mode you you mm. think different so mm. let's go down that rabbit hole because i'd like to hear more what you've discovered sure. and heard so, um, um, sorry, are you going to, do you want to start that with the question or, or do you? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, you, I can start it with a question or you can go ahead and, and jump right in. Okay. I can stop it either. Okay. What, what are your um, thoughts? Because you were actually started to go that way and then maybe I got you off track. Yeah. We'll edit this out later. It doesn't matter. Okay. Well, just on it's yeah the the the, the pandemic and as you say the, the hoarding of toilet rolls and it's just a very small example but but it's another thing that 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 I've learned I suppose and and again I've learned this through my career um, about thinking and, and and emotional intelligence and I I've always called it the emotional mind and the intellectual mind 
um and it, it it's a it's something you learn in life of course but and, and relationships are a good way to learn it and, and um but but i've i've learned that emotions arrive whether you want them to or not and you know the instinctive thing to do is to simply react to them yet the emotion the emotion feels very real when it arrives and you know from an evolutionary point of view it's there for a reason if a, you know if the if the and wild animals coming at you from the left field and you hadn't seen it you you need that emotional instinctive response to kind of get out of the way quick without having to go through the the system of working out whether it's rationally correct to do so you just need to react and so i i get why to a large extent why emotions are there and so they're really important but we've reached the apex we're at the you know we're the top of the food chain we don't need to worry too much about you know threats other than ourselves so I think our development as a species is, is, to, is to learn to use this intellectual side of our brain, the rational side. So embrace the emotions when they arrive, understand why they've arrived, and then but be in control of them to a certain extent. Don't, don't, you don't have to be, they don't have to be in control of you. That's how I've always perceived emotional and intellectual. And then as I've talked to more people like yourself and John Cook, who does um, Skeptical Science, who is a psychologist by training, I interviewed he's him talked last about, week. Okay, cool. Yeah. So he talks about system two thinking and, and this fast, thinking fast and slow is a book. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's up there behind me. Um, that's quite a meaty book, actually. I haven't finished that one yet. But it's all the same sort of principle. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the rational thought against the emotive, ir- irrational thinking. And from a climate change point of view, the challenge, I think, of climate change communication is really that we're talking to perfectly decent normal hard-working people who who just want to get to work each day make enough money to look after their families i always talk about this bell curve and in the middle although john tells me it's skewed towards concerned and alarm which is good but generally speaking these people are just they react to the day-to-day and we all do it and the problem with climate communication is although it's getting more and more obvious by as every day goes by in the last three or four years it's become you know, the extreme weather events have become clearer. The fact is the long-term consequences of climate change are not um, emotionally obvious to the average human being. They need to be rationally considered and rationally accepted by the average human being. And that's a really difficult thing to do. To tell someone that, you know, driving a car today means that we could have three, three or four degrees of warming, maybe even after you've died, but perhaps when you're a very old person, um uh, but you still need to stop driving a car today because there'll be people alive then that need you to do what you're you know need you to change your ways today most people are like yeah i get that but uh, it's just not I, I, it's not tangible enough and i th- therefore i don't care enough you know them they'll they'll work it out you know you could you can always go down any there's any number of reasons why not to do something and and it's very easy to do but finding the, the motivation to do something that is inconvenient to you now, because you know it's the right thing to do for someone's existential you know, safety in the future, is, is an incredibly difficult um, communication message to get across. And I, and I think that's where the critical thinking and the, these two systems of thinking, teaching people how to do them in the first place is a good life skill. So if it got, regardless of climate change, helping people to understand how to stay in control of their emotional mind, not, not, not dismiss it, but stay in control of it, allow it to happen, 
but understand it and be in control of it and then let your rational thinking and your actions be guided by your intellect and your rational mind that's kind of the that's a big a big journey for me throughout my career really but obviously it's really come to a fore in the last few years while i've been really thinking about it myself um and it's it's a fascinating field of of research that i, I know a lot of people psychologists in particular um delve into and uh and that is a challenge that if we can get that across to more people and i think it'll help us with the communication process i don't mean to put you on the spot but i'm going to put you on the spot uh to, to go even deeper in what you said were there any tips or tricks or things that made it easier for you anything that helped you change habits or, or grasp that emotional say realize it uh give it uh, its merit and then say, okay, but now I've got to, I've got to do it a different way because I've just read this report. I've just seen this. And, and is there any helps or things that for you that made it easier because you did apply some of those things. I mean, you said you're a smoker, drinker, you know, yeah. you did all these things. So what, what was, well, that, was it easy? Those are the things in fact. And, and so one of the, one of the things that I've learned is to confront an issue but I've learned that through not confronting issues at every twist and turn through my earlier life and realizing eventually that it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. If you, so um, I can give you any number of examples, but relationships, certainly you know, the, learning to live with loss is part of, is part of learning to make a change. And, and the intellectual mind is, well, I've found it to be extremely powerful in that process. So splitting up with a girlfriend, you know, and I've had several um, really people who I've really regarded as being, you know, this is this is definitely this time. This is definitely the one. We've all had those moments, um, and and you know, coming to the end of those relationships, um, I again in my younger days, I'd try it both ways. We'd all, I'm sure, we've all done this. We you try to sort of let's stay friends or drag on a little bit and maybe you know, keep opening the you know, a wound every now and again. And, and that's the emotional response because it's emotional. You don't want to let them go. Um, and it's the same with, frankly, it's the same with cigarettes and it's the same with alcohol because they're drugs that, that, and, and to a certain extent, relationships are crutches that you rely on in a good relationship. Of course, that's a symbiotic crutch. You're relying on each other. So you're, you're the combination of the two people is a, is a stronger than the, the sum of the parts. And that's a good, healthy relationship. So there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of other things, drugs and, and things that you take to try and replace that sense of, of belonging, they are only going in one direction and that's a destructive direction. And you can, and you can apply and people do generally apply the same emotional response to trying to quit. And same with food, actually diets, people who go on diets all the time, trying to quit by thinking I'll just quit for a certain length of time. Isn't quitting. You're just, you're just, holding your breath and you have to look oh, i've had to learn in my life that leaving a relationship is 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 like a loss um and you have to grieve and you have to go through all those stages but you have to you have to stop and move on you have to change your mind and that's where the intellectual strength of mind gets starts to become in charge of the emotional mind you have to change you have to say that will that is gone it's put it away it's finished. Same with so with I'll give you a little. This is really stupid, but with cigarettes. This is when I was thirty. I played a game with with nicotine. So I was smoking twenty cigarettes a day, 
and in my mind to help my intellectual mind make it into a really to get me through the first month actually because that's what everyone said was the hardest I kept score so every time I had a pang for a cigarette and I didn't have a cigarette one nil to me and pretty quickly it was two nil to me three nil in the first day it was 20 zero to me and I was winning I was winning the guy I'd made completely turned the cigarette about face from being my ally to being my enemy or my adversary and now I was now it was a game against me against that and that's just a little I'm not suggesting everyone uses that technique but it was a it was a technique that I helped that helped me to get through the first month and then after the first month it was simply changing the mindset to say that now is finished it's gone and it was the same with alcohol so I mean I wasn't an alcoholic but I did reach the age of 35 and in the UK, the government have a recommended um, consumption, a weekly consumption, which was 21 units in those days. It's less now, but in those days it was 21 units, which is 10 pints of English beer a, a week kind of thing. And I realized at 35 that I, on, based on that number of weekly intake, I had already drunk my lifetime's worth of alcohol because <laughs> I was drinking 100 units a week, something like that. Um, so I, So it was beginning to, I never drank, through the day. I never, I wasn't one of these people who got up and drank in the morning. I just like to have a drink in the evenings, but I start, I realized it was beginning to dictate the structure of a day. You know, my working day was kind of, well, I'm just getting through till half past five when I can get home and, you know, crack open a beer. Living for not the good. drink, living for the smoke, yeah, living for the not weekend good. type of a yeah. thing. Yeah. So you have to, so you have to, Again, you have you can't you can't say I'll cut or for me anyway. Cutting down wasn't an option. It's not it's not that's not changing your mindset. Um, and so uh, I learned to confront the issue that way. To change, you just have to accept that it's gone. Put it away. It's yeah, finished. form a gamification almost. You know the way you kind of yeah. yeah kept score. I truly the, believe there's multiple. You know, not just the one you said. I think that it, we're all individual and there's multiple different things that work for different people male female yeah. child youth uh, you know uh, different age groups of cultures and things that 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 are the the way but there are so many tools available out there to grasp at and when, when you're done saying that your your comment that you want to make i, I want to kind of maybe run through an exercise with you a, a tool that we can give our listeners of uh, to kind of shift from a habit or shift their mindset on, on the way to do something. Mm -hmm. yeah. You wanted to say just something. Gonna, well, the, it was just going <clears throat> to finish on the, the benefit of doing that way. Cause it, that all, what I've just described sounds, Oh Christ, you know, what a nightmare. Actually the, I cannot begin to describe adequately the huge benefit of, of applying that discipline to your life. Because once you've, once you've, done it and and the the crutch you've realized you don't need the crutch and you've reconstructed the way you act and and operate on a daily basis without that crutch the benefit the the liberation if you like is amazing it re, i mean it, i'm not just saying that it is it is surprising how how much better things are when you you know when you realize that these things aren't helping you they're just hindering you that's that's the benefit but again you need the critical you need the ability to see past the the the, the, the here and now to understand that that's what's going to happen and that's the difficult part but i having gone through it in my life and realizing come through the other side with those examples that i've just talked about 
I realize that that that's what's that's the goal. That's the that's the uh, the prize that's available to you. That's the last point I was going to make. With um, addictive substances or habits that are really bad for health, this is probably not the best best method or example of of how to do it. But just another simple simple kind of um, not only an analogy but example of how we can change our habits. Uh, I want to run our listeners through it so those who are listening on podcasts kind of follow along. I want you to fold your arm. Fold your arms together and then I want you to look down at your wrists and uh, for me my right wrist is up. I don't know which, which wrist is up for you. Dave. My left wrist. Your left, left wrist. wrist. Okay, now that's because it's comfortable. That's how we've always done it. It's the way we've, you know, been learned. It's just comfortable. We don't even have to think about it. Now I want to drop your arms for a minute and I want you to recross and fold your arms. And again, for me, it's always wow. pretty much the right. I don't, you know, do it different. But if now, well, did you do it different? I tried to deliberately and it feels extremely uncomfortable. Exactly. So what happens if now we were to do it a third time, but to do it the different way, it goes slower. It is possible, but just like I saw in the video with you, you had to think about it. You kind of, you know, you're like, okay, well, how do I put yes. the other one up? So one, you have to think about it. You have to, um, physically thinking how do you do it you could tell that it wasn't comfortable it wasn't what your habit was um, but it is possible if you practice it probably you know 30 40 50 times then it might become a habit or yeah. very natural once we do it and um, it's just something that we kind of have uh, to consciously think about with a lot of habits with a lot of changes um, not so much with the addictive ones. If we have a bad day and we don't want to get up and do our diet or do go to the gym, um, then we we have you know one day where we sleep in. But if the majority of our days are the ones going to the gym and doing the workout, or the majorities of the ones are changing our habits, moving in the right direction, over time that building a habit and building that change and it really helps to to turn on that light because you see the benefits of health and weight and surrounding mm. in your environment, you see that it's actually a better system. It works better for you. And uh, you know, there's so many tools and uh, to use, to apply, to, to change that, that are mixed with the mind and body not just the emotional and, and the mindset, but it's also, physically getting into a habit of, of doing something. And it's just a, it's really a freeing thing. And I, I appreciate you going down that rabbit hole and, and, and sharing that with me. Your last video that you released uh, yesterday was a mixture between the sustainable development goals um, the Sophie report, which is the state of food uh, insecurity, security, nutrition, that was just released. Um, and you had to re read a couple, I believe it was the IRENA report and a few other reports on, on that. It mm -hmm. was a fabulous video. But I, you know I'm an advocate for the sustainable development goals. I want to know your view after reading that report 
and doing that podcast. Do you believe that the Sustainable Development Goals are a roadmap, a plan for 2030 to get us there? Are they achievable in, in your mind? Can you tell us a little bit your thoughts and feelings on that, what you learned? My Yeah, I can. I mean, I, I think they, so I think they are a roadmap. I think the I think some of them are more achievable than others, of course. Um, they are interlinked. There's no question about that. The 2030 target, um, do I, I hope we get there, but I'm not sure we will. That's the honest answer. And the reason is, in my mind, well, there's a few, I suppose, but, but the first, let's go back to 2015, the Paris Accord. Yes. My, my, concern with the Paris Accord uh, or the agreement was that some some national governments may have seen that as, a, as an end point rather than a starting point and there was a collective sigh of relief that we'd reached that agreement and was a big cheer in the room and all of the rest of it which was great and it was a, there's no question it was a great achievement but I I you know whichever way you look at it you we haven't seen the progress in the in the ensuing five years that we need and national determined contributions are a perfect example um they're nowhere near where they need to be even the ones that they eventually put in take us to three degrees of warming by 2100 not 1.5 so the, i suppose if the it depends what the specifically what what we hope will achieve will we achieve keeping our global average atmospheric temperature below 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels no in my opinion i think that's already baked into the atmosphere i think there's enough co2 up there already that we're probably going to get there anyway with the delayed effect of of the of the reaction is there but does that make them useless no of course not so there's two ends you know it, there's two ends of the spectrum and there they are definitely a focal point i don't think there's been enough that's point one point two the you know fossil fuel and and um agribusiness and big pharma have done everything everything in their power to stop those things happening to protect their financial interest everything i mean incredible so that's not going to stop at least not in the near term but it's been a massive break on progress in my opinion um so that's political inertia commercial inertia if you like and and all the corporate lobbyists have helped with that um and then communication so a perfect example i i started a um i did a presentation at my work to try and start us on a um a carbon footprint audit of our business if you like and i presented and i, I used the the, the um, sustainable development goals as a, as a starting point a bit like i did in yesterday's video because that's where i think it should be is this is let's mm -hmm. start everything frame it with this because it's it's all there yeah. and none of them had none of them had heard of the sustainable development no one not a person in the room educated you know well-paid middle managers and senior managers in a in a london you know young quite young switched on people none of them had heard of it so that's and that's not the un's fault and it's not the fault of the sustainable development goals somewhere in the middle it's got the messages certainly in, in this country anyway i can't speak for everywhere in europe but or america but in this country that message hasn't got to the public so i i'm so, gonna have to disagree with you okay so I think it is the UN's problem for presenting okay. it to us um, in the wrong way. I don't think uh, many people have no clue 
how to look at the sustainable development goals. They don't know if they're for countries, corporations, if they're for cities, who they're for. And they're actually the biggest project everyone. They're for every, the open source, transparent, and they're for each individual. And they have to do with us. It's our future, you know? Yeah. And, and when we were presented with them, um, we, we didn't understand a few things. And if you don't mind me just interjecting and kind of, uh, uh, of sure. giving so, because I, I want to, I want to maybe go deeper into why that is and, and, and ask you some secondary questions in regards to that. First off, it was a, a historical global precedence before the Paris agreement, uh, the 2030 agenda, September 24th in 2015, the Sustainable Development Goals were launched and um, 193 plus countries agreed on them as goals and a roadmap to, to keep us, at that time it was two degrees of warming. So that we yeah. still had that, that, the two degrees. And then at the Paris Agreement in December, uh, um, at COP21, they kind of set a little bit more ambition and dropped it to 1.5 and we had to make some adjustments in the goals, but also in the plan and the roadmap, which was fine because we'd already run out the scenarios and, and looked at uh, that well before we even started. Because the way the sustainable development goals and the Paris Agreement to, were done was with a backcast from December 2030 to 2015, saying, okay, this is what our temperature would be. And it was started at two yeah. degrees right here. And this is the steps, the roadmap, the plan, the goals that we need with targets and indicators to be able to reach this. This is what we need to do. And so there was back casting involved systems, dynamic modeling and mapping. There was um, foresight, a little bit of foresight modeling involved in that. And then the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the, um, the UN, the World Economic Forum, and many, and many others came by and said, how much monies are needed to achieve them by 2030? And, and at the time it was 90 trillion US dollars to do that. So 6 trillion US dollars a year. And now it's about 95 trillion in order to reach and maybe even mm. a little bit 96 trillion because we're behind. And then there was many, many other factors involved in that whole thing. But when we were presented with them, where it's like um, a kid's carnival almost, you know, here's these colorful 17 goals. And uh, when I tell people I'm an advocate, a lot of the time they say, oh, I like number one, no poverty. Yeah. Uh, it's red. It's my favorite color. That's the one I'm working on. And it's virtually impossible, as you said, to work just on one sustainable development goal and not touch on all the others. If you were mm -hmm. to try to just work on no poverty, you would touch on zero hunger, quality education, well-being, uh, industry infrastructure, um, in innovation. You would touch on life on land, life below water, clean water and sanitation, climate change, and many, many others. So there's 11 um, sustainable development goals that are intrinsically tied just to food, and all 17 of them are tied to food as well and many, many other industries because they're a system. And so I, I, I feel that one, we were presented them wrong, but more importantly than that, 
we didn't understand what a historical precedence that was and that it's actually a roadmap and plan for a better future that once we reach them what does it look and feel like once we've reached them and that it creates a secure infrastructure we'll still have climate change and some issues because the pollutions we put in today are usually not seen for another 10 years and you know going back in history as well the same thing and and we're obviously a little bit off of target but had we begun right at 2015, had we have known how to understand them and apply them and what that means for us, more of a vision of what that looks like to be standing December 2030 there, what it feels like, what the world looks like, how to envision it, so that we have even something to work and uh, strive for, mm -hmm. so that we can engineer, create, innovate, and, and, and design for that outcome. I, I think we we drastically failed, and and the next thing before I touch on the on on the que the follow up questions to that is, I don't think before was the Millennium Development Goals, but there is no other plan globally for the entire world out there. No. So even if we said forget about the SDGs. What, is it the new the new green deal? What's what's the other plan that we have? <laughs> and I think one of the problem well the problem we have, of course, is that is that nationalism is taking the place of globalism to a certain extent. And then once that's happened, and again, you've got a pendulum swing. I guess it's this is not new in history. We've you know, I talk, my brother-in-law's father's ninety-four years old, and you know, I talked to him about these things. He's like, yeah, I remember this and that and the war, and you know, he's kind of seen these these political pendulum swing throughout his lifetime. Um, but there's no question that in the last five years, the pendulum has swung very far in a way that we all know, we all see it on the television, you don't need me to describe it, but it, it's, it makes nations retrench into their silos and become um, very defensive and, you know, keep them, it's a, it gets to them and us, keep them out. So that's one thing. And you've got, and you've also got other political agendas. And the main one, of course, is China's ascendancy in towards the being the dominant economy in the world and the united states are very unhappy about that understandably the, the uk went through it with the empire you know does decades ago and it's a painful process and the incumbent does obviously not want to become second best to anybody because they've been used to being at the top of the tree that is happening and mr trump is exacerbating that in a way that no one could possibly even have imagined um and let's hope in november that that situation changes without wishing to be too political, but I think for the good of mankind, it's important that he's not the leader of that country for the I next agree. four years, because he's done enough damage in the last four. That, that dynamic is happening. And then you've got the European Union, you've got the UK coming out in Brexit. These are all big, important, um, you know, super blocks of power that, that govern more or less how everything works in the world. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about more or hear from people that write the IPCC um, reports, there were these, you know, the seminal report, as you know, the SR15 in 2018, which is the one that really hopefully woke us, certainly woke me up. Another seminal moment in my time on the video uh, making process was to cover that in quite some detail in four very detailed programs. But the comment that you got from the, from the authors of the reports was that we, you know, we bring all the information in um, and then we spend months dotting I's and taking one word out of a sentence because it's not allowed by the, all the international lawyers and 
has to be agreed by every single political nation involved in the process and their lawyers. It's got to be legally binding. All of these things makes it almost impossible to really give a strong message. And what they, I mean, even though it's a very terrifying document, it's still probably been reduced down to the lowest common denominator that's acceptable to all. Um, and I think in a similar way, the SDGs uh, have suffered from that barrier uh, um, in terms of getting a global consensus. What we need is global consensus. What we need to understand is that this is one uh, life support system in the vast emptiness of space, never mind Mars or the moon, that's a nonsense. We might get there, but it probably will be a, an affectation rather than something useful. We are living on this planet. We've always lived on this planet. We are supremely adapted and evolved to live only on this planet. And we need to make sure we look after this planet. And that means one, one goal, one ambition, one drive, coordinated action by every country on, the, on Earth, not retrenching into our silos and becoming nationalistic. And well, as long yeah. as we sort our country out, you know, don't let anybody in and then we can have our little ecosystem in our country. It's so short sighted. And the people that think that that might work and billionaires going into their bunkers or whatever it might be, they think they can insulate themselves from nature. They are insane, insanely deluded. Yeah. Um, so again, as I said earlier, we can either we can either buckle up and understand and confront the issue globally as a as a global collective, or nature will just do it for us. It's happening. Whatever, however much, whatever doesn't matter what anybody says. Nature will sort it out. We can work alongside nature and get it right, or we can try and battle nature and probably be our demise eventually if we really if we really pighead enough to let let it happen so that's the i think and that's the problem i think with the sdgs that, that they need to be uh, and again um just to finish talking about the, the the thing that gives me hope uh one of the things is this pendulum mechanism that's that's already moving in the other direction in my opinion and so i think we will see in the next four years i'm very hopeful about this we will see a movement back towards that global consensus um and so that's why i'm still hopeful and i think there's still a chance we've still got nine years left it needs to be a busy nine years though there's there's a lot of chance and hope um out there 